Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This is a very special week in the life of Protestant churches all over the world. On October 29th, the religious movement known to us as the Reformation celebrates its 500th anniversary. Now, to be precise, we're actually two days early to the real anniversary, but two days off in 500 years is not that bad, right? So let's go ahead and celebrate today. This morning, it's a great chance for us to talk about this movement and how it shaped the Christian church, how it led to the birth of Protestantism and inspired a man named John Calvin to help form the beginnings of the Presbyterian Church that we call home today. It is truly a fascinating story, or at least I think so. I have to be transparent with you. I have a whole semester this fall in seminary dedicated to this time period in Christian history and to the writings of Calvin, so I jumped at the chance to preach when Adam asked a few weeks ago. And usually in seminary, they tell you not to take too deep of a dive into deep theology or history, lest you risk losing people to their own thoughts and mental grocery list making. But really, how often does the 500th anniversary of the Reformation come around? So we might as well celebrate it together today. Let's travel back 500 years to the early 16th century and find out what was so remarkable about this time period and this movement called the Reformation. Now I want to start by saying it's not accurate to say that there was just one Christian church in the 1500s. In fact, there were many expressions of Christianity. There were Christians in Africa and in India and in lots of regions east of the Mediterranean Sea. And what we usually attribute as the Christian church of that time is the Western European version of the Christian church, also known as the Roman Catholic Church. And that church was certainly home to schisms and divergent thinking well before the time of the Reformation. But here in the 1500s, this Western European Christian church was the most expansive, wealthy, and powerful of all the Christian churches in that time. It was ruled by a succession of popes who traced their lineage back to St. Peter himself to whom Jesus gave the very keys to the kingdom of heaven. The church was powerful spiritually, but also politically. And it controlled large territories of land. It commanded armies it made alliances and enemies, and even at times waged war. The popes and the cardinals were said to live more like kings than religious and spiritual leaders. And corruption was well known to the people of this time. Some of whom even tried to reform the church well before Martin Luther. And yet it was this man, Martin Luther, a German monk and professor of theology at Wittenberg University, who began to question the practices of the church 
and it sparked a revolution. The anniversary date that we actually celebrate this month is October 31st, 1517, which is the date that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, my seminary professor would stop here and say, or so the story goes. Though the date and even the act of nailing something to a door might be up for debate, Luther's writings and calling to account of the church were very real indeed. He had several major concerns with the practice of the church at that time, and the most famous you have perhaps heard about which was called the selling of indulgences. An indulgence was a practice where the church would grant basically a piece of paper to you for an acknowledgement of a donation to the church or a charitable work towards the church. And this paper would then certify that your soul would have to spend less time in purgatory before going to heaven. The teaching of the church at the time was after you died, you spent time in purgatory to atone for the amount of sins that you had in your life before you could go to heaven. And this piece of paper reduced that amount of time that you had in purgatory. It was kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card for you or anyone of your family. The rich had more access to this, certainly, and Luther had a problem with that. But his bigger problem was this idea that humans had any kind of agency toward earning salvation. In other words, he thought humanity to be sinners, and no amount of good works or donations or charity could make up for that. We heard this in Romans chapter 3 today, which is where Luther based a lot of this theology. Nothing we can do can earn us righteousness in God's eyes or as the scripture called it, justification. Try as we might, as good as we intend to be, we will always fall back on sin at some point. It's just our human condition. And therefore Luther concluded that we are justified through faith alone. We can only earn our place in heaven by having faith that God will forgive us and make us just. God's grace is something that is freely given to all humanity, not something that we can earn through any actions of our own. Now this stood in direct contrast to the Catholic Church's teachings that good works did add up to some measure of justification, that we actually could play a part in getting to heaven through what we did in our lives. That was issue number one for Luther. But there were two other big ones that he talked about as well. First, Luther and other reformers like Calvin had a motto in Latin, which was ad fontes, which translates to the sources, meaning back to the sources. They believed that we should be relying upon scripture as our primary source, and not church teaching, and not church tradition. Luther also taught that all Christians had direct access to God through prayer and scripture and should be sharing in the teaching that we should all function as a priesthood of believers. 
For these reasons, the reformers advocated that the Bible should be translated into languages that the people could understand and read and that they could teach and help discern what God was saying through the scriptures. All people, all people, not just the leaders, should be going back to the sources of our faith and finding out what God was revealing through scripture. These ideas went directly against the Catholic Church's stance of hierarchical leadership and church tradition as being the authority, as church tradition being the ones who tell us what Scripture means. With these ideas, the Reformation had started. And powered by a new invention at the time called the printing press, these ideas spread all over Europe. The once unified and powerful Western European Christian Church began to splinter into multiple expressions of Reformed Christian thinking. Reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli would inspire new denominations from their writings. And Calvin in particular is important to Presbyterians because he wrote not only foundational statements of our theology for our church, but he also helped to vision and create the system of polity that we share in today. Polity is the governance of our church, which we do by sharing leadership between ministers and elders and deacons. I also think it's very important to note that there were reformers within the Catholic Church at this time. Theologians such as Teresa of Avila and Ignatius Loyola, who wrote about living a spiritual life. And they too started movements within the Catholic Church, like the Jesuits, that reformed and shaped their church. This was a time of much change in Christianity as a whole, the echoes of which are felt 500 years later in our expressions of faith and worship each Sunday. Now, another of the rallying cries of the reformers in the 17th century was Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which is Latin for church reformed and always being reformed. It's still a popular phrase today for Presbyterians and other reformed churches. And it's a reminder to us that this movement was not something that started 500 years ago and then came to completion. This movement was intended to continue. The church is supposed to always be reformed by those within it, by the guidance of God. Presbyterian theologian Anna Case Winters points out that this did not mean that the church was supposed to change just for the sake of change. In fact, part of the thing that the Catholic Church called the reformers of the time. They called them innovators because they were changing. But the reformers said the change that has happened in the church has happened in the Catholic church. There are disruptions of our pure Christianity and for the reformers we need to reach back to the sources and find that pure faith that had been lost. The practices of the time of the Catholic church were not things that were found in scripture. They were not things done by the very first church. 
They were changes that happened not according to the sources. The Reformation called people to go back to the teachings in Scripture, in the Gospel, to what Jesus said as our guide for how people should live. And so in that way, it's really quite perfect that our Gospel lesson this morning is paired against the backdrop of this Reformation movement. It's this passage where Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets into two concise rules. My guess is when Tina talked to the kids this morning, you were familiar with this passage. I know it's one of the first things that I learned in Sunday school. I remember when I memorized it, I got to take a prize out of my Sunday school teacher Rachel High's prize box. This is the passage that people point to when trying to sum up what Jesus taught, and with good reason. On the face of it, there is nothing too hard about understanding what Jesus says here. The Pharisees would have already been familiar with Jesus' response because he's quoting from Deuteronomy, a passage called the Shema in Judaism. Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your might. The love your neighbor response is from Leviticus, also a well-known passage to the Jews of Jesus' day. And I think when something is very well known, seemingly easily understood, we risk flying right by it, don't we? Love God, love people, yeah, sure. Maybe it's a nice message for the time with children, but perhaps a little too simple for our adult sermon, right? What we have to remember is that Jesus did not mean for this to be an easy, trite answer. He was being tested by the Pharisees here. And also, when have you known Jesus to give a simple, straightforward answer? This is the same rabbi who teaches us in parables, whose closest followers often didn't understand him, who turned common thinking upon its head to show us a new perspective. It is this teacher who sums up all the law and the prophets in a way that is easy to understand and yet is so incredibly challenging to live out. I think that's where the power in this passage comes from. We can understand what Jesus is saying to the point where most of us have this passage memorized. But it's so challenging to live out the call for justice and love of God in our day-to-day life. This is a radical message from Scripture for us to reform the way that we are living. If we are to go back to the sources, to the very teachings of Jesus found in the Gospel, do we find that we are living out the simplest of teachings? Or do we all have work? Are our churches reflecting the call to love God and love each other, or do we get sidetracked by other discussions and other endeavors? And who qualifies as our neighbor? Jesus sums up the law and the prophet 
teachings in the Hebrew Bible in two statements. But there are almost 40 books in our Old Testament where the writers are trying to figure out how to actually do this thing of loving God and loving each other. This is tough stuff. Always has been. But it's important because it is the core of what we are to do as a church according to the most foundational and original sources of our faith tradition. We are a reformed church which is always to be reformed by the people in it according to God's leading. This call to action in our communal life of faith did not end long ago. And if we are to do as the Reformers called us to do and go back to the source of Scripture, this Gospel lesson is a perfect place for us to start. These most basic of teachings bring about questions that shape our journey of faith. What does it mean, my friends, to love God with all your might? Don't fly past it. Think about that. What does it feel like when your heart is dedicated fully to loving your Creator? What changes might that have upon your life, upon the things that we give time to as a church? Where are the Holy Spirit and Scripture calling us to go in the next 500 years as God's hands and feet upon the earth? These are not simple questions, only meant as substance in a nice, easy lesson on Sunday morning. These are foundational questions of our church and our faith that we need to be revisiting often. It is fun to hear about the Reformation on this anniversary date, to learn about the beginnings of our church denomination 500 years ago. But my friends, let us not treat it only as a history lesson. Because there is still much to be reformed in our church and our lives if we are to live up to this calling of Jesus to love God and love one another in a new way. God has been calling us to reform the way we do life together. The way we do church together also that we might know more fully the love our Creator has for us and then to show that love to the people around us. May we be partners in this work. Here's to the next 500 years of growth for God's church. Amen.